We're in Revelation chapter 5 this morning, and Carol read the entire chapter for us. The book of Revelation is the Word of God addressed to people like us, Christians under pressure. It is a letter addressed to ancient churches in Turkey that details visions the Apostle John experienced while imprisoned by the Roman Empire. Revelation is a notoriously tricky book of the Bible to read, to understand, to preach from, to agree on. But I think there are a few things that we can know anytime we dare open it and read it. We can know that Revelation was written to encourage us and strengthen us in our resistance towards sin. Revelation is an unveiling of Jesus' goodness, power, and majesty. Revelation is a message of assurance that Yahweh, the Creator God, will prevail in the end. The book of Revelation tells us about the future, but it also tells us about today. The signs and symbols that John uses can be used today to look out and understand our world. Right now, brothers and sisters around the world face death, imprisonment, and violence for their faith, and their souls cry out for justice. Right now, Monstrous governments and corporations grasp at totalizing power, seeking to dominate every aspect of our lives. Right now, saints and angels are gathered around the throne of the Creator, offering Him worship and honor. At the beginning of chapter 4, John sees Yahweh on His throne, with spiritual beings around Him in a cosmic worship service. Chapter 5, as Carol read for us, begins when John notices a great and faithful scroll in the right hand, I suppose, in the right hand of the one who is seated on the throne. And at this point, reading it up until now, we don't know what the scroll is. We don't know what the contents are. Perhaps it's the message that John is supposed to proclaim. Perhaps it's the plan for the future of the cosmos. Perhaps it's both. Either way, the scroll represents the unknown will of God, the plan of God, which is sealed even to angelic eyes. And we see in this chapter that John weeps when no one standing there is found worthy to open this scroll. He weeps. Why? Because I think that, for a moment, it felt like the jig was up. That this vision that was supposed to be about the future and God's plan and God's victory was going to halt before it even got started because nobody can open up the the, the seals of the scroll to see what's going to happen. I think John weeps because he's hopeless in that moment. He's hopeless. As many have been and many are. The powers of heaven are unable to open the scroll. They can't know the future. They cannot enact it. God's future for the world will remain a mystery, and John and his fellow Christians will have to wait in the dark. And we could say that John should have known better, but I don't know if our own wrestling with hope would stand up to that same test. And the fateful scroll in the hand of God is similar to Roman wills of the period. Only the appointed heir, whose contact information was written on the outside, that's the writing on the inside and the outside, was authorized or worthy to open it. And as John watches, the heir arrives. He shows up. 
He is called the Lion of Judah, but what John sees is a little lamb, looking like it had been slaughtered and yet somehow walking up and about and alive. The lamb has seven horns and seven eyes. I've never seen a sheep like that. Maybe some of you have. I think if I did, I would move to a different country. <laughs> the lamb has seven horns and seven eyes. And this seven, we've talked about many times before, is a special number in the Bible. It means perfection. The idea here is the lamb has perfect power and authority, the horns. He has perfect vision or wisdom or insight, the eyes, that matches these seven seals on the scroll. And the lamb receives the scroll from God in the heavenly court, worships the lamb. And if there's any confusion at this point as to who the lamb is, the song they sing identifies him and tells him why he's the heir, why he's the one that's worthy to open the scroll. Verse 9 says, Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals, for you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. This lamb is Jesus, God come in a human body, who has done what no one else could on earth and in heaven. And then Revelation 5 ends with this shockwave of praise expanding throughout the universe, summoning the celestial host and then the creatures of earth and heaven, or earth and the sea, rather, to worship the Lamb. And it's likely that many of these songs, John may not have received them or he may not have fully made them up, but he might have incorporated hymns that already existed in the life of the ancient church. Right? These are songs taken from the, song, the, the hymnals. I mean, they didn't have hymnals, but you know what I mean. The collection of songs that they used within the ancient churches. And this tells us that the worship of the Lord by the church, which isn't just singing, but I think one of the principal ways we do it is, is through song. Naming him most worthy, most valuable, most powerful. That worship is the doorway to hope. Jesus is the only one who can die for us and redeem us. Jesus is the only one who can open the scroll. Jesus is the only one in whom we can place our hope. A few weeks ago, Randy, one of our deacons, led the closing prayer, and he reminded us of a simple truth. That in the midst of all the craziness, we need to remember that God's got this. That's what Randy said. To remember that God's got this. And to use Revelation's language, the Lamb is worthy of our hope. That's the truth I want to reaffirm in your hearts this morning. If you take nothing else, take that away. The Lamb is worthy of our hope. Now, hope is not a grown-up word for wishful thinking. And I think often it's swapped out with that. It's really just about wishful thinking. It's a confident trust, an active trust, right? We act on our hopes. Hope is not a denial. We pretend that nothing is wrong. That's part of why we incorporated the lament prayers into our Advent services this year is because it would be silly to get together and pretend to be, I mean, not pretend to be cheerful, but and just pretend that all these other things aren't happening. Hope is not denial. 
Hope is also not optimism that claims that things are as good as they can be. Why should we complain? Revelation 5 shows us that hope exists right with the presence of evil, the presence of the henchmen of death. Jesus conquered, but he did that by passing through the jaws of humiliation, slaughter, and death. And those of us who are familiar with Revelation know what's coming as the Lamb starts to open those seals to read the scroll. It's not a map of candy land that God is holding in his right hand. Christ's people will suffer as he did. They will resist and be faithful witnesses to the kingdom as he was. They will trample the serpent under their feet along with him. Revelation 5 reveals that the good news is the key to history. Doesn't mean we fully or always understand why events happen the way they do, but we can know that what's happening through all these earthly events and the twisting and turnings of countries' fates and our personal fates is that the Lord is working out his purposes in Jesus with us. Jesus' death, rising again, and ascension help make sense of the confusing days of our lives. All God's people are on the road to glory, but that road passes through suffering and death. The worst day of your life does not come as a surprise to God. Now, why things have to happen the way that they do? Why do things have to hurt as much as they do? Why do some people seem to basically get through it all without a scratch, whereas other people just go from crisis to crisis to crisis for decades? I don't know, and I think that takes us beyond human comprehension and the witness of Scripture. Those are good questions. It's not wrong to ask those questions. But we have to have hope while we're asking those questions, not only after those questions have been answered. Because the fact is, many of those questions are never answered in this mortal life, and they may not be in the next. I don't know. We'll see when we get there. The Lamb is worthy. Because he was slain and redeemed God's family with his blood. The lamb is worthy not because he kicked out all the bad guys like his disciples, many people that they need were expecting, but because he let himself be beaten and killed by the bad guys. And in so doing, he broke their power. Hebrews chapter 2 tells us, Since therefore the children, that's us, share in flesh and blood, Jesus himself, Likewise, partook of the same things, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is, the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. One of the things that was happening in the Roman world at the time that John was writing was that the worship of the Roman emperor was becoming more prominent and more pressure was beginning to be exerted on citizens to participate in that. An emperor worship was actually invented in one of the cities that Revelation is addressed to. Pergamum, I believe, was the first city that actually had a temple built to Caesar Augustus to worship him as the son of a god, to worship him as divine. And so these same cities that John is sending these visions around to are the same cities that are hotbeds of this rising cult of the emperor. Who shall we pledge ourselves to? Who ultimately receives our honor and praise? Can Jesus share the throne 
with anyone else besides God the Father and God the Holy Spirit? Those are the sorts of questions that were at the top of these ancient Christians' minds, and in fact, ought remain at the top of our own minds too, because we don't occasionally examine ourselves. We don't slide toward greater goodness and faithfulness. We slide towards idolatry and treason. The scene in Revelation 5 is therefore a quite pointed piece of political theology. It's not the emperor who's worthy to come in and open the scroll. It's a little slain lamb, not the human ruler, who comes forward as the heir. It is Jesus who was executed under the authority of Rome, who was worshipped as God, not the emperor, the embodiment of Rome's authority. It turns out that worship is an issue of allegiance. We've talked about this many times before. Of the clash of kingdoms between the creator and the stolen kingdom of the evil one. And this is really what scares my old friends in the Chinese Communist Party and governments and human powers around the world. That if Jesus is Lord, if Jesus alone is worthy of our hope, then nothing else can be. Amen. Which means they have no power, really. I was convicted about this a few weeks ago in my own heart when the news came out that there were vaccines for COVID-19. And setting aside all of that, but just the idea that there is a vaccine, that there's light at the end of the tunnel, kind of a solid piece of evidence that this isn't going to be forever. I felt such a surge of hopefulness and excitement. But the Holy Spirit checked me in that moment. What was I really placing my hope in? Week after week, we get up here and we talk about Jesus and how he died and how he rose again. And some weeks that's, that's exciting to me, but other weeks it just is what it is, as I think it is for many of us. I was convicted that my hope had shrunk, had shriveled, that I was merely hoping for good things in this life. Right? Sure, fine, it's good news that there's a vaccine. But uh, the good news, how much richer and deeper and better and more compelling ought that be in my heart? Our hope cannot be held by other people, at least not for long. Whether they're scientists developing a vaccine, politicians hemming and hawing about another stimulus check, Loved ones making promises that actually only God can keep. Our hope is too big for merely human hands to hold. Our hope cannot only reach the horizon of our earthly life and go no further. Our hope must move beyond our personal death, which will happen sooner or later, and into the resurrection future that God has promised and previewed in the rising again of Jesus himself. Jesus is our living hope. That's what 1 Peter calls him. Because he is, in fact, alive. We've talked about that many times that here at Calvary. We believe that Jesus isn't just some interesting historical figure or an imaginary friend that we really enjoy, but that he is, in fact, alive today. Our hope 
is in the fact that that man walked out of the tomb three days after they killed him. A dear friend of mine has been helping one of his friends remodel a barn into an apartment for her father, my friend's friend's father, to live in. And all three of them are creative, skilled people, and so they've had a grand time over the last couple of months finding all these, you know, architectural pieces to put in there and just, you know, all these kind of fun artistic things to do, and, and they're just having a great time. Their friend's father is an accomplished local artist here in Illinois whose steel sculptures grace many public spaces and buildings in, in the western part of the state. But here's the catch. This father is gravely ill. They're remodeling this barn into an apartment so that the daughter can take care of him in his final, potentially months, maybe years, of life. And it's natural to wonder, and as he's described this process to me, I've wondered many times myself, is it worth the work and the efforts and the expense to make a home for a dying man? I think this situation is a parable for us, for what it means to live in hope. You see, the clock is actually ticking for us all. All of the labors in which we spend our days are being done for dying men and dying women. Catch a man a fish, he eats for a night. Teach a man to fish, he'll die eventually anyway. Our hope and the meaning of our life cannot be based on the stuff we get to do on the short amount of time that we're alive in this mortal and fallen way. It must be based on who we're doing it for, on who we're doing it with. While we wait on the Lord's return, we hope, we wait for him to heal, to act, to rescue. Christians aren't just supposed to sit here twiddling our thumbs. We are to remain busy, living lives of worship, spending ourselves to bless others as he has commanded us to, building something beautiful yet temporary that is still worth it because of who, of, because of who we're building for. Revelation 4 and 5 let us in on a bit of a secret, at least I think a secret in our culture today. You see, I think when a lot of people think of God, or think of God's throne, or wherever God does his thing when he's not, you know, around here, is they think of some very distant place that's very quiet, kind of no, nothing on the walls, sort of like your boss's office, but just much larger, right? This stuffy, sort of oppressive place. But Revelation 4 and 5, actually, not your office, Clayton, Revelation 4 and 5, let us in on the secret that the throne room of the universe is actually a very loud, crowded place where things are constantly going on. Alive with colors and jewelry, crowded by these fantastic spiritual beings who live their lives in song. Revelation 4 and 5 give us this picture, a reminder, that Yahweh the Creator is literally the center of the universe. All of the other things are pointed inwards at Him. Our lives are lived in hope as we learn to stop living for ourselves, to turn ourselves towards the real center of the universe. We lift our eyes past earthly concerns and fix them on Jesus, the Lion of Judah, the Lamb of God.
Our hope is renewed when we are reminded that it is not about us. And you can fill in it with anything you can think of. Church, America, your family, your job, even your own heart's desires. None of it is ultimately about you. To be filled with hope, we must be empty of our own selfishness. And that's a process, but that is how it works. As Jesus teaches, for whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. Revelation 5 shows us that this is what happens when we gather together to worship. As I said earlier, worship is more than just singing. I think singing is one of the ways that we step out of the center and remind ourselves that our lives are actually about someone else, right? We don't sing hymns to ourselves, at least not in public on a Sunday morning. <laughs> singing does that, so does prayer, so does greeting one another in the friendship of Christ, hearing the word, receiving communion, giving of our money and time and resources. In fact, all of the things that we do on a Sunday morning are geared towards taking ourselves out of the center and training our hearts towards the real center and core of the, of the universe. Worship is a way to hope. We gather on Sunday mornings. We build something beautiful, yet temporary. Service is only an hour and 15 or so minutes long. And it's not for us. It's for the Lord. Those of you who cook a lot, or those of you who do other things, kind of know the feeling, right? You spend all this time cooking, or we spend all this time thinking and reading and writing and composing and recruiting other people to help us and getting on the phone with the folks at YouTube to scream at them and all these different things, and an hour and 15 minutes is all over. <laughs> we have to do it again. We come together, we build something beautiful, yet temporary for the sake of his name. And when we do that, we find ourselves in his life-giving presence, a guest at the Feast of the Trinity. Our worship is joined with the worship in the heavenlies, our songs with the songs of the angels, our prayers with the prayers of the saints around the world and long dead. Jesus comes among us and renews our hope. And I'll close with some of Paul's words from Romans chapter 5. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through him, we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand, and we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. Not only that, but we rejoice in sufferings, our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance, endurance produces character, and character produces hope. And hope does not put us to shame. Because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. Amen.